something about that tune that just kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> Titus, your mission, and you cannot refuse it, is to go all over the island of Crete and to install qualified leadership in the churches so that they may equip the believers to live godly lives of good works, that they may stand out in a godless generation. Titus, this message will self-destruct in five seconds. And how many are glad that the Holy Spirit didn't self-destruct this message? Oh my goodness, you know, it didn't self-destruct. Rather, it has been preserved by the work of the Holy Spirit for us to be able to see it today and to understand how to become godly people in a generation and in a culture that has gone godless. Good morning, my name is Bill Walker. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, I am the pastor here at Grace Church, one of the pastors here at Grace Church. I am so glad you're with us. Uh, today we are going to continue on with our expository series out of the book of Titus. So if you have a Bible, I do want to encourage you to take it out, open up to Titus chapter 1. While you're doing that, I just want to say that after today, for the next four weeks, we are going to take a break from this uh, series out of the book of Titus, and we're going to turn our attention to this thing called the case for Christ. It is the personal story of Lee Strobel as he wrestled from atheism, to, from an atheist, and how he ultimately became an apologist for Jesus Christ. This movie is remarkable because it will help those people who really have intellectual challenges to find a lot of those things being scratched. Some people are just emotionally connected to Jesus Christ and they come very easy. Others have challenges intellectually that have to be satisfied. This movie will satisfy a lot of those challenges. Now again, we've got a 106-seat theater. Uh, we're going to sell about 75 tickets amongst ourselves. We can all just have a good old Grace Church time. Amen? But we also want to invite about 30 folks, friends of yours, neighbors of yours, families of yours that don't go anywhere to church. People that can kind of get connected and hear this message, this testimony of Jesus Christ and perhaps start that journey with Jesus. Uh, a man by the name of Mark Middleburg uh, works with Lee Strobel and he gave us this encouragement. Let me share it with you. So Mark Middleburg said this about the movie. Hi, I'm Mark Middleberg, and you know, one of the hardest things to live with in life is the pain of regret. And I want to urge you not to experience that pain by missing the case for Christ, or going alone, or maybe waiting for the DVD to come out. You'll regret that. In fact, I think you'll kick yourself because you'll say, I know so many people who if they had seen that, if they had gone into the theater with me, their life might have been transformed, or at least it might have started them on a spiritual journey uh, toward Christ, just as it happened in the life of Lee Strobel, as you see in the film. So I just want to urge you, don't wait for that moment where you go to the theater and it's late in the game and you say, it's too late to bring people. Don't wait for the DVD to come out. Seize the moment. It's coming out April 7th. Invite your friends. This is an authentic, raw, powerful telling of an atheist going through a spiritual journey, ups and downs, you know, questions and answers, and finally coming to Christ. And you can confidently invite your friends, and believe me, you won't regret it. Amen. You won't regret it. Now, if you invite them and they say no, no regrets. But if you're sitting there and you're witnessing this and you're thinking, I wish so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so were here, those are regrets. So have no regrets. Invite someone. And you know what? Next week we're going to start selling all these tickets. And if they all go, we'll just grab another theater, okay? So let's just do this uh, to the glory of God. And hopefully people will meet Jesus in the process. So it's going to be an exciting time over the next four weeks as I actually kind of unpack his story. Uh, beginning Palm Sunday and right on through two weeks after Easter Sunday. So it's going to be a great, great walk. However, today... We are indeed in the book of Titus together, and today we're going to continue to look at this idea of growing in godliness, and it begins in the church. If God's people are going to grow in godliness, that's Christ-likeness, it must begin in the church, and it begins with appointing godly leaders. Now, last week when we were together, uh, we began this, so if you will, today is going to be kind of part two of this idea of appointing godly leaders. So let me just kind of take you where we were. You see, everything, 
everything rises and falls on leadership. Amen? Think about it. Think about a strong business. When you see a strong business, the, the thing that should come to your mind is, wow, they must have a good leader. You see a strong military outfit, and what comes to mind, they must have a good leader. You see a, a, a well-functioning government, and you must think they have a strong leader. Well, let's not go there. You see a great football team. Well, let's not go there either. I'm sorry, sorry. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who do not know, I'm a New England Patriots football fan, and everybody here is, isn't, so that just creates its own issues. Uh, but, you know, strong teams, strong uh, uh, units, strong uh, relationships, everything comes back to this issue of leadership. That's true of the church as well. You want to see a growing, healthy, vibrant church, then what you're looking for is, is strong leadership. And so this is what Paul is telling Titus needs to happen in these uh, local assemblies. And so he's given them a strategy. And the strategy begins by appointing these people called elders. Last week we looked at that word and discovered that that one word, which is the word presbyteros, has a ton of information in just that one word. Last week we talked about how the word presbyteros, uh, used as the word elders here, refers to primary church leadership. Uh, it is the primary level of church oversight. It is those who are tasked with leading, feeding, guiding, and guarding the people of God in local assemblies. That's what a presbyteros is. That is who an elder is. So they are the primary church leadership. We also talked about from this word that it also refers to a plurality of primary church leadership because the word is in the plural and shared leadership in the New Testament was how church governance happened in the New Testament model. And so, too, we're exploring that here at Grace Church. How we can have shared leadership on the elder level, the primary level of church leadership. And then last week we also talked about this very unpopular uh, reality from the Scriptures. And that is this, presbyteros is also in the masculine. So it refers to a plurality of male primary church leadership. Again, in our day and age and in our culture, that is not popular at all, except because God's the one who founded it, God gets to say how it works. Does that make sense? You see, we are the church, but the church isn't ours. The church belongs to Jesus, and Jesus has the right and reserves the right to explain how he wants his church to be run. And so last week from Genesis 1 and 2, we saw how God instituted and designed the family based upon male headship and about how Eve was created as a complement to her husband. Well, again, God instituted and designed the local church, and he chose to base it upon male leadership. I didn't make that up. I'm just sharing with you what the scriptures teach. So if you want to throw any rocks, uh, where's Dennis? He seems to be missing. No, 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 don't blame Dennis either. Uh, I often like to hide behind the word. Uh, because quite frankly, uh, that's the best place for me to hide. It is behind what God has to say. So if you want to know more about this concept called complementarianism, I want to encourage you to check out a resource. It is a website. It is cbmw.org. Uh, that represents um, something called uh, the Coalition for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The Coalition for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So I want to encourage you to look at that. We'll actually talk a little bit more about this when we get into Titus chapter 2. We talk about older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and just how those relationships and how that's meant to work out. So we'll talk more about that concept when we get there. But today, we're going to continue on as we continue to look at this thing called elders, the plurality of male primary church leadership, that it also is contained this idea. And it is that it is a plurality of godly male primary church leadership. With your Bibles open in your laps, we're going to be looking today in Titus chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9 together. Verses 6 through 9 together. I'm going to read them here. And I'm going to uh, spend a moment praying with you. And then we're going to unpack what we read. So, Titus, I want you to appoint elders in every town as I directed you, and if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination, what I want you to understand is an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but rather hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it has been taught to him, so that he may be able to uh, give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine, teaching to others, and also be able to rebuke those who contradict the sound, healthy teaching of God's word. Let's take a minute, let's pray, and then there's a whole lot here to consider. Father, thank you for the privilege that's ours to worship you. Oh, this morning has been just glorious. I mean, the weather, Father, the, the day, uh, just watching your church family love and work together, and this morning worship together. To me, uh, as a shepherd, this has been glorious, and I'm just so grateful. Father, continue to bless us with your goodness. Uh, we do not deserve it, but we ask for it. We do not deserve it, but you are good, and that's who you are, and we ask that you would continue to bless us. Father, we're about to walk into some uh, very interesting words contained in your word, and I just pray that the Holy Spirit would speak far beyond what I have to say, and that you would take it and unite it to where we're at in our lives, even now. Please, Father, bless us in spite of us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here we go. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. What you're going to discover as you look at uh, the book of Titus, chapter 1, is that there is a parallel to this in the writings of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, another young man like Titus, who was in the church in Ephesus as Titus was on the island of Crete. And in uh, Timothy, chapter 3, we have a list of what's called qualifications for elders that's very similar to what we discover here in Titus, chapter 1. So there is, if you will, certain things that should mark out the lives of the people that you should be looking for as leaders of the church. And this is what Paul enumerates here in Titus. Now the key indicator that Paul gives to Titus in assessing the quality of the man being considered for the position of elder, it revolves around these words. It is the idea that he should be above reproach. Notice it's said twice here, that he is to be above reproach. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, and it's a different translation than the ESV, there's a very good chance that you have the word blameless in there. So the word means to be above reproach or to be blameless. Now, let's just get one thing straight right up front here. To be above reproach or to be blameless does not mean sinless. Amen? Because how many people would be qualified for church leadership if the term were sinless? None of us. Absolutely none of us. So I want to begin by kind of setting that understanding that we're not talking about people who don't sin. We're talking about people who are blameless. Now let me give you a definition of what this word uh, actually means. It means that they cannot be charged with an offense. That Hence, that's what the word above reproach means. It means that nobody can bring reproach upon them. Now, this is going to help in understanding uh, what Paul is talking about. So, so this is important. Paul's standard that he gives to Titus here is one that is based on observation. You are looking at the lives of various men. The term is not one of self-assessment. It's not that I'm blameless or I'm above reproach. Rather, it is you looking at lives and, and saying that they seem to be blameless. They seem to be above reproach. So it is not a self-assessment term. Rather, it refers to the observation of the people of God, of the people who would be their leaders. So it is the observable conduct of the men or the man which provides a window into his character that you're looking for. So you're watching the life, and in that life, you're ascertaining whether or not this person has the character that they should have to be the leaders of the local church. And so when you're looking at these men, when you're trying to consider who should be the leaders over this local, local body, what you're looking for or what you are observing is the relationships in their lives. 
And so here we have the relationship of the wife. You're looking at the husband-wife relationship to see if they are above reproach. You're looking at his relationship with his children to see if he's above reproach. You're looking at his relationship to other people, and that's what this section largely covers. And you're also looking at his relationship to the Word of God. So you're looking at a person's life, and you're observing their character in light of these relationships. So what are you looking for? What is it you're trying to understand? What are you trying to ascertain concerning these people who would be your leaders in the church? Well, let's do it this way. Uh, I want to ask for you to kind of help me do this. What I'd like to do is I would like to have you look right here. So we have four little dots there. I'd like you to focus in on those four little dots. Just look at them. And I'd like you to think about the first dot is his relationship with his wife. His relationship with his children would be that second dot. His relationship with others would be that third dot. And his relationship to the word of God would be that fourth dot. Now keep looking at those dots. Keep looking at those dots. The first one represents his relationship with his wife. The second one represents his relationship with his children. The third one represents his relationship with others. And the fourth one represents his relationship with the word of God. Keep looking at that. So what are you looking for in this man's life or these men's lives? What you're looking for is this. Blink. Blink. What you're looking for is someone who is taking upon the appearance of Christ-likeness in these relationships. You are looking for men who have, have grown in their maturity to a place where you look at them, you're actually observing Christ-likeness happening in their lives. Again, they're not sinless. They're not perfect. But there is a maturity, a Christ-likeness that is developing in their lives. So if you're saying, Pastor Bill, would you do that again? Because I don't see what everybody else is seeing. Because everybody said, wow, and I didn't say, wow. <laughs> I will give you another chance in a few minutes. So hang in there. So we're looking for a Christ-likeness in the life. And again, this boils down to, to observation. And um, where is a man most likely to be himself? Where is a man's natural habitat? His man cave. Yeah, I know, no, no, no. I, it's in his home life. You know the old saying, uh, a man's house is his castle? Well, it feels that way when you pay your taxes. I know it does. But, but the reality is, it's, it's meant to be a reflection upon an observation of the home life. Now, the question is, well, Titus, how are you going to get into these people's houses to know what's going on? Well, the reality is, in those days, they didn't have inns. So when somebody would come around, especially part of the church, an official like Titus would have been, they would have had him into their house. And he in their house would have seen the husband and wife interaction, him playing with the kids. They would have seen all of this happen. And they also didn't have assemblies like this. They didn't have buildings like this. They had house churches. So Titus, as you're meeting with the churches, observe. And I want you to observe, first of all, how the man relates to his wife. So the first and primary relationship in a man's life is his relationship with his wife. And so we have these words, these very controversial words. He must be the husband of one wife. Now that term, that little phrase has been used in many different ways. And, and people have tried for centuries to really know what Paul means. Well, let me take the next two minutes and tell you what I think Paul means. Okay, here we go. First of all, some people have said that they think this means that a man must be married. After all, he's the husband of one wife, right? So he must be married. Well, um, I don't think that's necessarily what Paul has in mind here. While marriage certainly adds to a man's experience and allows him to actually relate with the majority of the people that he would be shepherding, I don't think Paul's mandating that a man must be married in order to be an elder in the local church. I say that because... Titus wasn't married. There's a very good chance Paul wasn't married. And Paul actually said these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 34. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 34. He said this, An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And we know that to be true if you're a married man. You know, you can throw yourself into work, but you still have a family. You can throw yourself into the church, but you still have a family. Now imagine not having a family and how much you can throw yourself into something. 
You could be a whole hog and nobody would care. But when you're married, you do have divided loyalties or responsibilities, perhaps is a better way to put that. So here, I don't believe that he's necessarily saying that a man must be married. I think he's just saying the likelihood is most are. In the sense that the primary relationship in, in a man's life, watch it, view it, try to understand and observe it. So secondly, not only that a man must be married, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, another way people have tried to understand this verse is that he must not be a polygamist because he's got one wife at a time. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily what Paul had in mind either. Uh, polygamy was not a real big issue in the Greek or Roman culture. I don't think that's necessarily uh, what he had in, intended. Uh, I don't think an elder should have more than one wife at a time. I, I think that's true. Okay, that's good. I th- there was a little humor in there, yes. So if he has three wives, he's probably not a good candidate for an elder. And he needs to have other discussions. Okay, here we go. So a man must be married? Not necessarily. A man must not be a polygamist? Well, yeah, I think that should be true. Uh, a man must not be divorced or remarried. Now, this is a way a lot of folks have seen and understood this verse. Um, again, I think the issue of being above reproach is paramount in this issue. So if somebody had gotten, uh, had gotten married and the marriage came apart prior to even coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, but on this side of, of Christ, on this side of the cross in their life, if they have married and they have this beautiful relationship now going forward, I, I, I'm not sure that this necessarily says that person can't be considered. So all that to say, I, I don't know that this is necessarily a, that a man cannot be divorced and remarried, but he must be above reproach in the relationship that he finds himself in. Again, there's open discussion on that, and we could go round and round about that. But what I really think Paul is getting at is this. The man must be maritally and sexually faithful to his wife. This is really the point that he's making. Husband of one wife can be translated with the three little Greek words, quite straightforwardly, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. That means he has faithfulness. He has fidelity with his spouse. It means he is wholeheartedly in love and devoted to his wife. That is what I think he's really saying here. He is to be one who is wholly devoted to his wife. Now let me explain why in just a minute. Because this really makes perfect sense. So Titus. When you get together in these home churches. Titus when they put you up overnight. I want you to observe. I want you to observe their words. Does he speak lovingly to her and of her to others? How does he talk about his wife? How does he put her before others? And does she speak of him with respect? Or is she always running him down? Titus, observe. I want you to observe their interactions. Does he evidence loving leadership? And is she responsive to that leadership in the home? I want you to see these things, Titus. I think these things are important. We'll talk again in just a moment why. Then I want you to observe his eyes, Titus. Observe his eyes. Does he have eyes only for her, or does he have a wandering eye? That's important. And this is why. When considering a man for the position of an elder in the church... We are to observe the primary relationship in his life, and that is his wife. Does he love her? Does he serve her? Does she respect him, and is she responsive to his leadership in a loving, healthy manner? Because if he can't love and lead well the most important relationship in his life, what makes you think he can love and lead well the church of God? Think about it. God instituted both the marriage, the home, and the church. And headship is the key in both. And if he can't do that in the primary area of responsibility, the home, what makes you think he can do that in the church? And so this becomes ultimately important when we're assessing individuals for a primary leadership in the local church. Look at his relationship with his wife. Back in 2000, uh, I sat before an ordination council. Uh, that's one of those scary times where people kind of expose you and kind of dig you up and dig, you know, lay you all apart, and they try to figure out what's going on in you. So I had an ordination council at New Carrollton Bible Church. Uh, it's right next to uh, what used to be Capital Bible Seminary, Washington Bible College. It's right up there on Good Luck Road. Uh, 
Uh, Sam Martz was the pastor of that church, and I had been in his church for four or five years at that point as, as a, a seminary student and, and all. And so Sam called the ordination council. And on the council was Sam, and on the council was Mike Amadek, a good friend who was pastoring. He's now uh, an army or a chaplain in the Navy. Uh, there was another good friend who was a, a pastor, and I had three seminary profs on there. Uh, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and the other one was my primary uh, guy who I worked for, and that was the dean of the seminary. So these are the people who are going to check me out to see if this is the guy that he should be to serve God in this capacity. And so they went at me. You know, it was almost like the bell went off, and they just started like a bunch of hounds coming after me. It was like, oh, what is this? They were testing me. They were trying to see how well I would do under pressure. And so they began, we want to hear your testimony. We want to hear a solid testimony of your relationship with Jesus Christ so that we know for sure that you have the confidence that you're truly saved. Okay. And then right after they said, we want to hear your calling to ministry. We want to understand what makes you think that God is going to use you in this capacity. Share with us your sense of calling. Okay, and then it came to theology and how I handled the word of God and my hermeneutics and, and they started going after all these areas. I wrote a 22-page thing that I had given them in advance for them to analyze my doctrine. And so they were going after all this stuff and they said, now we want to understand your experiences and we want to understand the fruitfulness of the ministry God's already given you because if there's no fruit there, there won't be in the future, so tell us all this stuff. And I'm just like, this went on for hours. But that wasn't the most scary part. Because at, at, at the end of my time with them, they dismissed me. Bill, you can go out in the other part of the building and get something to drink. You look like you're pretty hot. <laughs> Sweaty. Yeah, that was me. And we want to talk to your wife. So Bambi sat before them without me in the room, and they grilled her on our relationship. They wanted to know how I was as a husband. They wanted to know how I led the family. They wanted to know my relationship with Jesus Christ. And they ascertained a lot of that from my wife. You see, this is a key ground of understanding whether or not somebody can be in primary church leadership because the primary responsibility in any man's life is his wife. Beyond the Lord is his wife. How does he do in that area? So... Titus, I want you to begin by observing this primary relationship, the relationship with his wife. But secondly, I don't want you just to observe that relationship. I also want you to observe his children. Are they believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination? Now, I'm not sure I necessarily like this translation. Sorry. Uh, let, me, let me give you how I think this is actually going to be said better. Uh, his children are, and the word here is believers, but actually, I think the word, it, it's the word pistis, which can be faithful. Are his children faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination? So I think what he's saying here is not, are they believers or unbelievers, but rather, are they faithful to their parents or are they insubordinate to the parents? So I think that actually creates a better contrast than reading the word believers in there. And there's a couple of other reasons why. I don't think that's the right translation. Here we go. You can't save your kids. You just can't. You can create an environment where you are loving your wife, and your wife is loving you, and you love Jesus, and you can put that before your kids. You can pray with them at night. You can read them Bible stories. You can take them to church, but you can't save your kids. That's above your pay grade. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not you. And ultimately, whether or not your children are believers or unbelievers has a lot to do with nurture, but ultimately it's God's responsibility, not yours. So I don't think it means, are they believers? Because you can't make that happen. Secondly, the reason why I think it has the idea of more to do with faithfulness and the possibility of insubordination is, again, because of the parallel section that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which says this, of an elder or one being considered, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So that's Paul's words to Timothy and I think the idea of keeping his children submissive is consistent with the idea, are they faithful or are they insubordinate? So, the observable feature in relationship to his wife, can he love and lead her well, and thus he can love and lead the church well? Observe that. But when it comes to the children, the observable feature is, are the children under control and respectful? Are they evidencing consistent biblical discipline and a loving nurture? Now, again, kids aren't perfect, amen? Grandchildren are, though. Can I show you a picture of my grandchild? 
but our children sure aren't. <laughs> and, and, and so the reality is, you know, there are hiccups, there are moments of, of difficulty. Does that disqualify somebody? Well, not necessarily. The reality is, how do they handle these things? How do you handle disruptions? How do you handle hardships? How do you handle difficulties? If you can handle it well and come through the other side, that shows that you're qualified for this position because you actually handled the hardships correctly. And so, so the challenge here is the observable relationship with his wife, the observable relationship with his children. Titus, an elder is one who is above reproach in his marriage and in his family. Let me put it another way. And to me, this is the litmus test. The litmus test for whether or not somebody is qualified ultimately to be a leader in the local church. And I appreciate these words that came uh, to me uh, in my small group, which we host on Sunday nights down in the fireside room. In our small group last year, we did a series on discipleship. And one of the men who spoke in those videos was a man, man by the name of uh, Jeff Vanderstelt. He's the pastor of Soma Family of Churches. The word Soma means body. Uh, the Soma Family of Churches. He made this statement, and I tucked it in the back of my brain, thinking the day is coming where I'm going to want to share this, and today's that day. So hear what he has to say, and you want to bring the volume up because this is a very quiet one. Again, back to where I started, I think my recommendation would be that churches reevaluate how they've structured everything because I don't know that you can even build trust if you don't build into time, build time into relationship, uh, I'm amazed that we hire pastors on a resume. You know, you're like, really, you're going to entrust your family to someone you've never lived with? Like for us, anybody who's an elder at our church, we have to all be able to say, if I died as a husband, I would entrust my wife and kids under their care. And if I can't say that, then they can't be in leadership. Well, how do I know that? I only know that by being tested, by having time watching them. Uh, I, I'm not just giving someone a position because they've got a great resume. Uh, we, we make the joke that even if Billy Graham came to our church, he'd have to be with us long enough to become an elder. You know, now, he'd be an elder <laughs> statesman when he first shows up, but, but he, no one knows his life. He doesn't know their life. He's going to need time with them to be able to say, yeah, I know you, and I can speak into your life. You know me. You didn't just take it for granted that I was a traveling evangelist. Uh, that's obviously an extreme, but I don't think that we, we build the church so we can even test people. Uh, Did you pick up that rule of thumb or that, that litmus test? The basic litmus test, I think, is to whether or not somebody would be an ideal elder in the local church would be this. If something were to happen to my wife and I, and my kids were yet young, would I trust them to raise my kids? Quite frankly, that's the kind of people that you should want to have as elders over the house of God. You should want men, men and women who, who are together in marriage, who you respect to the point where, you know what, if something were to happen to me, I would trust them with my kids. I think that's really the point that Paul is trying to impress upon Timothy. Because the important thing is, is how well is he doing in his home? So the primary relationship is with his wife. The second relationship is with his kids, but it all revolves around the home life. So there is that. Um, let me quickly, and I'm running out of time. I always do. I, that's just Bill Walkerisms. You know, he's out of time. Here we go. I want to quickly deal with the observable relationship he has with others. Now, these are what I would call the must-not-bees. The must-not-be. He must-not-be. The must-not-bees, Okay. And the must-not-bees are, he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy of gain. These are the must-not-bees. They must not be like this. So let me quickly see if I can push through this uh, and give you this, because I want to share with you uh, a handful of men that we as Grace Church are starting to assemble as, as what we see as the potential elder uh, group for this church. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Must not be arrogant must not be arrogant. This is self-willed or stubborn. An arrogant man is one who is wise in his own eyes, and he wants his own way. He's stubborn and tends to be inconsiderate of others' opinions, feelings, or desires. An arrogant man is headstrong, independent, self-assertive, and ungracious, particularly towards those of a different opinion. He's not a team player, and the ability to work as a team player is essential in eldership. 
You want people who can get along well. And people who are arrogant do not do that well. They don't play well with others. Secondly, he's not quick-tempered. This is a tendency to become angry or given to anger. An elder is one who controls his emotion and exercises proper judgment. An ill-tempered man will destroy the peace and unity of God's family. You don't want such a man in the area of leadership. Must not be a drunkard. This is the idea of being addicted to wine or a heavy drinker. An elder must be above reproach when it comes to the use of alcohol or any addictive substance. I love Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5 say this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Why? lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So what is stated here is not a prohibition from the use of alcohol. I want to make that clear. It is a prohibition from uh, being addicted to wine or being a heavy drinker. But let me just say personally, because I come from a, a family that has a problem with alcoholism, it runs back through my family line, as well as because these verses here in Proverbs 31, 4, and 5, I don't drink any alcohol. I just, I just never really have, just because I know the proclivity in my family is towards alcoholism. And when I stepped into this thing called leadership, I thought, you know, that's another reason for me not to go down that pathway. So I do not use alcohol. Alcohol is not in my home. We made that decision as a couple many, many years ago, uh, largely, again, because uh, alcoholism runs in our family, and I didn't want my kids uh, chasing down that path either. So he must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent. The idea is abusive. He must not be a striker, literally is the word. An elder is neither a bully, physically abusive, or a quarrelsome person, verbally abusive. An elder cannot be that. And then lastly, not greedy for gain. This means shamefully greedy for material gain or profit, materialistic. An elder does not use his position to take advantage of people or situations for the sake of money. He is, he is meant to be above reproach when it comes to money matters in his home, in the church, and if he happens to be in the business world, in his business as well. He must be above reproach when it comes to the issue of money. Uh, I just want to share with you a little bit where I'm at with that, <clears throat> knowing that money is often an issue in a lot of churches and, and is the downfall of a lot of men. Um, Back in 2000, my wife and I made the commitment that we, we would not do our taxes ourselves. Uh, we have a third party to our taxes just to make sure that that's all above board with the government. Uh, also, when it comes to the issue of money in the church, I know what the budget is here. I know what the cash flow is here, but I don't know what anybody gives here. I know what I give here, but I don't know what anybody else gives here. And anytime you come up to me, and some of you have done this, hey, Pastor Bill, I forgot to put my offering in the offering plate. Would you, give it to, would you take it? And my general response to you is, no. I don't want your money. I don't want to touch the money. I just as soon stay apart from the money because I just think that that's a problem. So I've chosen in my life and ministry to create a few hedges, if you will, barriers to prevent certain things from happening. And one of those is in the area of uh, greedy for gain. I, I don't want to be accused of that, uh, whether it's true or not. I just choose not to get in the middle of all that. Uh, the pastoral staff is getting ready, or pastoral staff, I'm sorry, my staff, is getting ready next month uh, to go to Lancaster. And uh, we're going to go for a, a, a meeting called Sticky Teams. The author is a man by the name of Larry Osborne, a pastor from the West Coast, brilliant man. He, he's just got very simple, good horse sense, good biblical horse sense. So we're going to take our team, myself, Pastor Dennis. We're going to take Courtney. And we're going to take Kathy Shaw, who's over the children's ministries, and we're going to take Mike uh, Rowe, uh, and we're all going to go up to Lancaster. We're going to hang out for two or three days together, uh, do some training together, do some team building together. It's going to be a really good time. But in preparation, we're to read this book. And so in reading this book, there's a great quote that actually deals with this portion of Scripture we just looked at, the things that ought not to be in the lives of a church leader. And this is what he says, and it's very well said, I think. He said, for those who are contentious, self-willed, materialistic, or hot-headed, even if they have great gifts, knowledge, and leadership skills, they don't belong in ministry, be it on the board, an elder board, or the staff of the church. Be especially leery of those who are angry and argumentative for all the right things, particularly the single-issue crusader. I call these people pit bulls for Jesus. You know the type. 
They are passionate and angry against sin and sinners. To most Christians, they look like on-fire spiritual heroes, but they're not. The Apostle Paul did not make a mistake when he warned against putting quarrelsome people into leadership. He, uh, and he didn't distinguish between those who are quarrelsome for the right things or those who fight over the wrong things. He simply said, keep contentious people out of leadership. Here's why. Pit bulls bite. It's what they do. If you allow one on your board or ministry staff, don't be shocked when at some point of disagreement they turn around and they bite you. And they bite hard. It is what pit bulls do. So this issue that Paul is talking about of what should not be true in the life of a leader is very purposeful. Because if you get the wrong person in who has some of these traits, they're violent or, or they're abusive or, or they're addicted to various things, you're going to have problems, big problems, eventually down the road. So those are the must-nots. And then lastly, uh, we have some of these, not lastly, but next to last, oh, let me get your hopes up, um, we have the must-haves. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Titus, watch to see that the man must be hospitable. A, a, a stranger-loving person. Uh, the New Living Translation puts it this way, he must enjoy having guests in his house. He opens his home and his heart to others, devoted to the welfare of others. He is a lover of good. That is one who is willingly, uh, one who willingly and with self-denial does good. Unwearying activity of love is really the idea. An elder is one who displays the positive virtue of seeking to help people and live as Christ-like examples before people. Self-control is sensible and moderate. Having a sound or healthy mind. And having the ability to curb one's desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. An elder is one who has good judgment, discretion, and common sense. I want to say that again. This is key. Because not everything's black and white in life. And if you have leaders who are only black and white people, you're going to have a very legalistic church. You want people who are discerning, people who understand that there is gray, people who know there is nuance to some things in life as well. And so you want somebody who is self-controlled. They're sensible and they're moderate. Somebody who has good judgment, discretion, and common sense. He must be upright. The idea is just. Lives in accordance with God's righteous standards. He is principled and thus will make fair, just, and righteous decisions for the church based upon the word of God. He must be holy. The idea is devout. Uh, devout to God, committed to, his, to God and to his word, and he must be disciplined. Having uh, a firm hold over one's desires, self-controlled discipline, an elder practices the application of biblical habits and restrictions for growth in godliness. So, so what, is, what is he saying we should be looking for? Look right here. Focus in on those four little dots. The top one, we should be looking and observing his relationship with his wife. The second one, we should be observing his relationship with his children. The third one, we should be observing his relationship with others. And we just covered that ter territory. And the fourth one, we'll mention it briefly, is he should have a, a good relationship with the word of God. His wife, look at it, focus on those, just those four dots. His wife, his children, others, and the word. Are you ready? your turn to go, aha. Uh -huh. Now, blink, blink, blink. There it goes. What we're looking for is not somebody perfect because no such a person exists apart from Christ. But what we're looking for are those who are growing mature in Christ, those who are growing uh, like Christ in their life. And then lastly, his relationship to the Word, his relationship to the Word he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He has a grasp of the word of God, and the word of God has a grasp on him. He understands the word, and the word is transforming his life. And actually, this could actually refer more to the gospel, which Paul taught uh, through proclamation. Uh, but the idea is he knows the gospel, he's living the gospel, that's why his life appears like this. And so he has such a grasp of the word that he will be able to give instruction to others, that's to disciple people and to help people grow in Christ-likeness through the word, but he can also rebuke those who contradict it. So this is what the Bible calls an elder. 
A man, as you observe his life and his relationships, his wife, his children, how he treats other people, and how he handles the word, will tell you a lot about whether or not he should be leading over the life of the church. Can I just say, these qualifications, while they're true of elders, they should be true of every man in this room. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, this is kind of your own little list to kind of say, how am I doing? Because these things are really not meant to be just for elders. This is really the low bar, friends. This is character. This is, their character has to be here. But in addition to character, you want guys with particular gifts on the board. You want guys with particular leadership abilities. You want guys who have other abilities on the board. So the issue of character is a given. This has to be in place. And then everything else you can add to that. His, his, his passionate devotion to Christ and all these other things you can add to that. But this is, this is the low bar, not the high bar. You say, well, it seems awful high to me. Well, it shouldn't. As we move forward, that bar will get closer and closer, and you'll be able to leap it one of these days. And then you too can be qualified as an elder, uh, Lord willing, in the local church. Now, we as a church are in the process of trying to become more biblical in our form of church government. Uh, by that I mean we are trying to isolate men who would qualify as elders so we can apply the biblical criterion to them. And then as we move forward, we'll also uh, apply the biblical criterion for deacons as well. And so the goal is that as we move forward, we'd have a little bit more of a biblical church form of government. Right today, we have something called a church council. It has worked exceptionally well in the life of this church because there have been really good people on it. But the only problem is there's no church council like ours in the Bible. I guess Acts 15, but no, we won't go there. That's not the same thing. But so the goal would be that we could actually have the biblical um, roles here. So let me share with you some men uh, that we believe uh, at this point reach these goals and would make great leaders in the life of this church as we work forward. Now again, these people that I'm about to show you, most of them, uh, these are not voted in. These, these are things we're working toward. We haven't gotten there yet, but these are the people that are helping us get there. And I guess by virtue of who I am, I think I have to be on this list. Uh, I, am, I am the uh, senior pastor here at Grace, and so I was hired to lead the flock. And so, uh, by all means, I'm very pleased to be a shepherd, an elder here at Grace Church. Um, but in addition to me, there's somebody else who, by definition and by role, also fits nicely in this place, and his name is Dennis Fay. So Pastor Dennis Fay, likewise, and I are presently the elders here at Grace Church. Well, the church is getting larger, and we are getting older, and so we need more help. That's how that works, man. We're running out of strength. So if more is going to happen, we need more, more people. And so in addition to us, we got away, and we said, who would we trust our kids to if we were to die and they were little? Who would we trust our kids to if we were to die and we were little? Who would we say we'd be happy for them to take them and raise them? These are the folks we came up with. This is not by any means all of them, but this is the beginnings of where we're going. Um, Pastor Jerry Small. He is a reverend, a doctor, and he's pastored for multiple years at Forcey Memorial Church up in Silver Spring, Maryland. He and his wife retired down this way, have been in the church for many, many years. So this man, by definition, is a godly elder. His dear wife, Jan, last night fell and broke her hip, we believe, so if you would be praying for Jan uh, as she goes through this time, but uh, very pleased for uh, Jerry to be on this group of elders. Uh, another uh, gentleman that we said, by all means, if something were to happen to us, we would trust him with our kids. Now, we didn't talk about trusting with our grandkids. That's another whole issue, isn't it? <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Matt Duransky. Uh, Matt and Jody are a lovely couple, godly folk. Uh, we are so pleased to have Matt join us at this point on this board. Again, this is an unofficial board. We have not been sanctioned by the church, but this is a group we want to walk forward with into the future and then ultimately help the church walk through this process of elders and deacons. So Matt is pleased to join us, and he, he uh, has done so. Uh, Jack Sup. We are very pleased to have Jack Sup be a part of this group as well, Jack and Diane. Feels like a song wants to come out of that. I don't know. Jack and Diane. No, no. 
so Jack is also there, and then uh, very pleased also to include um, a dear, dear friend. Oh, by the way, just before I get going here, uh, Matt Duransky has been the head of the congregation on the church council a number of times, and so he has been at the highest form of leadership in this church. So has Jack. Jack today is the head of the present council. So these men have already been in leadership at the highest positions that this church has, so that's nothing new. And then um, the, the sixth member of this team at this point is... Uh, Steve and Blair Salvis. Steve Salvis is another one who is joining us in this team. Um, his, his great um, quality, other than the fact that he's just nuts and bonkers about his wife, which is a great quality, is that uh, he is the man who is in charge of the pastoral search uh, when they found me. And so he was in charge of the group that actually brought me to this church. And the other distinction that we share together is that we were both born exactly on the same day, in the same year. So we are both exactly the same age. As you can see, he's aged better than I have. So I don't know what's up with that. Better genes, I guess. So folks, these are the growing, these are the elders that we're presently working with. Very pleased to have this group. And again, this is by no means the elders we could have chosen from. There's a number of men here that fit this qualification wonderfully. And as we move forward, we're going to start sanctioning more of these. And that will ultimately be up to you. But I just want you to know where we're at in this process. Jack took his uh, former church through the process of bringing in elders. He's going to help us work that process as a church as well. All that to say, everything rises and falls on leadership. And if you know these men like I know these men, you would think the days are looking pretty exciting here at Grace Church. Godly good men. All right. All that to say, next week, the case for Christ. Let's pray. Whew. Father, the Apostle Paul was quick to say that though he strived harder than any other man, it was always the grace of God in him that brought the fruit. And Father, I know each of these men that I've just held up as examples of Christ's likeness would say the same thing. It wasn't them, that it was the grace of God in them that has blessed them in ways that they simply could not manage or make happen. So Father, we don't stand here above others and over others. Rather, we stand in a position of service and love to the body. And I just really pray, Father, as we work our way forward, that we would honor you in how you choose to have your church function. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said...